This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Hello, welcome to Hidden History, an Odyssey Through Time. I'm your host, John Rodriguez, and this is episode 22 of the Best History Podcast north of New York City. This is also the last episode of season 2 of this podcast, which over the last 11 episodes has covered victims and heroes of the Holocaust. With that being said, the title of today's episode is Distant Memories, The Life of Dutch Holocaust Hero Marian van Binsbergen. Before we begin, it's August and we here at Hidden History would like to give a quick shout out to the podcast of the month over at the Deluxe Edition Network, our podcast network. The two podcasts are called Quad Pro Quo and The Broken System. Quad Pro Quo is a weekly film podcast by two couples who also happen to be friends and live next door to each other. New episodes drop every Thursday. The Broken System podcast is a true crime podcast that explores different criminal cases that have slipped through the cracks of the justice system. You can find these great podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you podcast. Thanks for listening, and now let's get to the episode. In his study of rescuers, Irvin Staub states, quote, Goodness like evil often begins in small steps. Heroes evolve, they aren't born. Very often the rescuers made only a small commitment at the start, to hide someone for a day or two. But once they had taken that step, they began to see themselves differently, as someone who helps. What starts as mere willingness becomes intense involvement. So what inspired Marion Van Binsbergen's willingness to help Jews? Well, while riding her bicycle to school one day in 1942 in the Netherlands, Marion came upon a group of Nazi soldiers liquidating a Jewish children's home and watched helplessly as they violently threw young children into a truck. This encounter transformed the life of the young Dutch woman forever leading her to become an active resistor to the Nazi regime and ultimately saving the lives of 150 Jewish children during World War II. Over three years, she risked her life numerous times by hiding Jewish refugees, arranging falsified identification papers, finding non-Jewish homes to take in Jewish children, and performing what was known as the Mission of Disgrace, by falsely registering herself as the unwed mother of newborn babies to conceal their Jewish identity. Quote, Most of us were brought up to tell the truth, to obey the secular law and the Ten Commandments, Marion reflected in a 1996 lecture about her wartime experiences. By 1945, I had lied, stolen, cheated, deceived, and even killed. 
What began as mere willingness became intense involvement for Marion, especially when she was forced to kill a Dutch Nazi policeman who had shown up at her house searching for hidden Jews. Marion's story, hidden history that has remained long forgotten, is the story of a young, compassionate Dutch woman determined to do what was right and a foreign government set on the complete systematic annihilation of Europe's Jewish population. Marianne Pritchard was born Marianne Filipina van Binsbergen on November 7, 1920 in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. One of two children born to Jacob and Grace van Binsbergen, Marianne grew up in a comfortable middle-class home. Her father, a judge, was liberal and progressive in outlook and had a strong sense of right and wrong. Her mother, who was born in Britain, came from a family that valued the Anglican faith and Marion spent several years at an English boarding school. She also became a girl guide in the international scouting movement that was active in England at the time. Dinners and summer vacations were a time for long discussions and young Marion's opinions were valued by her parents. This enabled her to think independently and feel a sense of competence. As she got older, Marion decided she wanted to be a therapist, and so at the age of 19, she enrolled at the Amsterdam School for Social Work. In May 1940, however, Nazi Germany invaded the Netherlands, and although she didn't know it yet, Marion's life was about to change forever. On May 11, 1940, the world looked very different in Europe than it had just the morning before. Nazi forces had attacked the Low Countries, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France on May 10th, although the invasions had not come as a complete surprise. Nazi Germany had been at war with Great Britain and France since, since September 1939, when Germany had invaded Poland and sparked World War II. With the invasions of Denmark and Norway in April 1940, it was only a matter of time before Hitler continued his conquest of Europe. The goal of the Germans was to conquer France. They wanted to bypass the French defense line at the eastern border by going through the Netherlands and Belgium. Their occupation of the Netherlands, which was a neutral country at the time, would also prevent England from setting up a base of operations on the European mainland. Hitler justified the attack with a lie in an attempt to influence public opinion. He claimed that England and France had been planning to attack German territory via the Netherlands and Belgium. Some German soldiers were therefore surprised when they never encountered any English soldiers in the Netherlands. Within four days, after witnessing the devastating bombing of Rotterdam and the threat of the same in Amsterdam, the Dutch army surrendered to Hitler. Fortunately, Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands had managed to avoid capture by the Nazis thanks to the fierce opposition of the Dutch soldiers and blunders made on the German side. At first, Queen Wilhelmina did not want to leave her country and her people, but she was forced to leave when the situation worsened. She fled to Great Britain, where she established a government in exile, but there was very little she could do for the people of the Netherlands. Some people criticized the Queen for fleeing and called her a coward. However, during the German occupation, the Queen would prove to be an important symbol of the fight against Nazi Germany.
Things felt different for the Jewish population in the Netherlands. They had the most to fear from the Nazis. Some of them had fled Germany in the 1930s, and now they were being overtaken by the Nazis. In the months after the invasion, hundreds of Jews committed suicide. During 1940, the German occupation authorities banned Jews from the civil service and required Jews to register the assets of their business enterprises. In January 1941, the German authorities required all Jews to register themselves as Jews. A total of 159,806 persons registered, including 19,561 persons born of mixed marriages and some 25,000 Jewish refugees from the German Reich. After several months of escalating tension between the Dutch population and the German occupation authorities and the collaborators in the Dutch Nazi and fascist movements during the winter of 1940-1941, clashes erupted in Amsterdam between members of the WA, the paramilitary arm of the Dutch National Socialist Movement, and the Jewish population. In the aftermath of these clashes, which lasted February 8th through the 11th, 1941, an order was issued to establish a, a Jewish Rad, or a Jewish Council, in Amsterdam. In the territories they occupied, the Nazis set up Jewish councils that were kept in line through threats and empty promises. These councils helped the Germans administer their Jewish populations. Controversially, the Rad was involved in selecting Dutch Jews for labor camps and in September 1943, the Nazis deported approximately 2,000 Dutch Jews to Westerbork concentration camp, including Jewish leaders of the RAD. While studying at a friend's apartment in 1941, Marion was arrested by the Nazis along with the other students present, who turned out to be part of the Dutch resistance. Unknown to Marion, the students who lived in this apartment had been listening to the Allied broadcast on the radio and were then making copies and distributing them. As a result, Marion would spend the next seven months in jail. Quote, I always thought I had my mother's ability to ignore fear until I spent some time in jail and that was very frightening. Cleared of all charges, Marion was released from jail seven months later and in 1942, as she continued her studies in social work, Marion was working in a rehabilitation center when her supervisor asked her to shelter a two-year-old Jewish boy who was in danger of being sent to a concentration camp. Despite the possibility of prison, or worse, she brought the boy home, not telling her parents that he was Jewish and he remained there for several months until Marion found him a safer place outside Amsterdam. It was also in 1942 that Marion decided to focus on psychoanalysis and around July of that year, her Jewish psychoanalyst asked her for help finding a safe location to hide since he knew she was already involved in trying to save people from being sent away to the death camps. Marion and two others managed to find the psychoanalyst a place to hide and they brought him food, clothes, and news from the outside. Eventually, the psychoanalyst was found by the Germans and did not survive the war.
One morning in 1942, while riding her bicycle to school, Marion passed a small Jewish children's home. She saw Nazis loading children, from babies to about eight years old, onto trucks. Quote, they were all crying, and when they didn't move fast enough, a Nazi would pick them up by an arm or leg or even hair and throw them onto the trucks. I was so shocked by this treatment that I found myself in tears. Marion then watched two women come down the street and try to stop the Germans, and they were thrown onto the trucks as well. Before this moment, Marion had known of the German threat, but had never actually seen the Germans in action. It was then that she realized that her rescue work was more important than anything else she might be doing. From then on, Marion started to participate actively in the Dutch resistance, often working by herself or cooperating with a network that located hiding places for Jewish children. Her mandate was to work as a courier, visit children at their hiding address, and transport them to a new address by train or simply on the back of her bicycle, and supply them with fake identity papers, ration cards, and when needed, medical aid. Marion's former high school teacher also sent Jewish children to her, and Marion never hesitated to go down to the town hall on a mission of disgrace to register a Jewish child as her own. In addition to carrying out short-term assignments, Marion would also take on a long-term mission when she made the decision to hide a Jewish man and his three children from the fall of 1942 until liberation in 1945. In the fall of 1942, 22-year-old Marion was asked by friends in the Dutch resistance to find a safe place for a Jewish man, Fred Pollock, and his three young children, Tom, Lex, and Erica. Fred was forced to go into hiding after his non-Jewish wife, Edwina Moore, was arrested for her resistance activities shortly after the birth of their third child. Fortunately, she was later able to return to her family after the war. Marion moved Fred and the children to a house in North Holland, and for the first year in hiding, Marion visited the family every weekend. When she finished school in November 1943, she moved into the home and took over the full-time care of the children while Fred worked on his PhD thesis in philosophy. Marion became very close with the children, especially baby Erica, and the people in the neighborhood thought that the children were hers. One night in 1944, Three German officers and a Dutch Nazi policeman showed up at the house in North Holland for a search. In the event of such raids, Marion and the others had removed some floorboards in the living room and built a hiding space, which Marion covered with a rug. When it was time to hide, the baby would be given a sleeping pill before being placed in the hiding place with the rest of her family. Thanks to this hideout under the floorboards, Fred and his family made it through many raids during the war. On this particular night in 1944, Marion did not have time to give Erica the crushed up sleeping pill. The Germans and the Dutch Nazi left after failing to find any Jews, and the baby started to cry, so Marion let the children climb out of the hiding place. Unfortunately for him, the Dutch Nazi returned to the house about a half an hour later, hoping to catch Jews who had been in hiding coming out of their safe spots. Listen to Marion explain what happened next with the Dutch policeman. So, 
this this night just the the the, the Dutch Nazi policeman came back and I couldn't think of anything else to do except to shoot him. Meek, the, the, the Gentile who had asked me to find a place for them, had given it to me, and I had put it behind the books on the shelf above the bed, never intending to use it. Uh, I'm against capital punishment and I'm against abortion. I can make exceptions on abortion, of course, but I am basically opposed to capital punishment and killing in general. Um, but the, yeah, your unconscious is quite powerful, and when it was a choice, most likely between the kids and him, I chose him. And uh, I didn't wait to see um, what he was going to do or what he was going to say. I, by then, I could, obviously, if he'd gone into the other room, he would have seen the kids. He might have known the kids were around anyway. But my instinct was that uh, if I didn't get rid of him, those kids were doomed. After killing the Nazi, Marion spoke with her neighbor and friend, Carol Poons, a Jewish ballet dancer who was determined to assist in the rescue effort of as many Jews as possible. Carol quickly came to her aid, and in spite of the curfew, he walked to the village and talked with the baker, who agreed to come and get the body in the morning with his horse and wagon. Carol and the baker also paid a visit to the local undertaker, who agreed to dispose of the Nazi's body by putting it in a coffin with another body being buried the next day. In July 1944, Marion added kidnapper to her resistance resume, but in this case, it was kidnapping for a very good reason. You see, in a village near the house that Marion lived in was a woman named Leanne Brillish Lichper, a talented Jewish dancer and singer. She was in hiding with her non-Jewish German husband Eberhard, her two-year-old daughter Kathinka, and other members of her family. Leanne and her sister Jenny had decided to fight back against the brutal Nazi occupiers of the Netherlands, and risking arrest and death, they set up a safe house in the woods that they called the High Nest. This secret place would serve as a hiding place and underground center for resistance partisans as well as anyone else condemned by Hitler. Leanne and her sister were warned repeatedly that they were taking too many chances, but their response was always the same. How can we refuse anyone who comes to us for shelter? Unfortunately for Leanne and the rest of the occupants of the high nest, they were eventually betrayed. On July 12, 1944, Police and members of the SS, a Nazi paramilitary organization tasked with the annihilation of the European Jews, surrounded the high nest. While the house was being searched, Leanne pretended to have a fit, hoping she could convince the Nazi detective guarding them that the children should not be taken to prison as well. The trick worked. Leanne's daughter, Kathinka, was taken to the home of a local do doctor after Leanne did a little more convincing and also mentioned that her daughter was only half Jewish. The adults in the group were taken to Gestapo headquarters in Amsterdam where they spent the night and the next day the SS tried to get Leanne to provide information but she refused. The officer in charge then hit her in the face and threatened to bring in Kathinka and torture her. That night, July 13, someone approached Marion and her Jewish neighbor Carol Poons asking her to steal the little girl before the Germans took her away. 
Once again, Carol Poons insisted on helping out, although Marion knew that Carol would be killed if they were caught and she didn't want him involved. Nonetheless, Carol insisted and the next morning, he and Marion went to the home where Katinka was being held. While Carol distracted the doctor and the guard at the front door, Marion ran in the back door. Quote, Fortunately, Katinka was already dressed, recalled Marion later on. I grabbed her, ran down the stairs, put her on the back of my bike, and pedaled off. It seemed as though she knew how high the stakes were. She was so small, so brave, and so scared, but she didn't utter a sound. Katinka was reunited with her parents, Leanne and Eberhardt, after the war. The couple had another daughter, and Leanne carried out her plan to perform Yiddish songs of celebration, defiance, and remembrance for the next 50 years. The full story of Leanne, her sister Jenny, and their fight against the Nazis can be found in the book, The Sisters of Auschwitz, the true story of two Jewish sisters' resistance in the heart of Nazi territory by Roxanne Van Iperen. The rescue of little Katinka in July 1944 was important to Marion because although she was the one to ride away with the little girl, it was thanks to Carol Poons that she even accomplished the task. Marion wanted the world to understand that we do not have to remember the Jews only as victims. Carol was a Jewish rescuer. There were many courageous Jews who were rescuers, but a majority of them did not survive the war simply because they decided to try to save other Jews instead of going into hiding. During the winter of 1944-45, near the end of World War II, a famine known as the Hunger Winter hit the German-occupied Netherlands, especially in the densely populated western provinces. Marion headed north to look for food, riding her bicycle that had no tires by then and loaded down with some family silver. She successfully bartered with some farmers for food and on her way back home, a German patrol stopped her as she was crossing a bridge. Marion and about 40 others were arrested and the Germans confiscated her bicycle and the food she was carrying. When the prisoners were told they would be allowed to leave the next day, minus their food, Marion became enraged. She began to scream at her captors, telling them in fluent German what she thought of them, their Nazi leader, and the war they started. Others tried to shut her up, knowing that people had been killed for lesser offenses, but Marion couldn't stop. However, the Germans didn't say a word and the next morning, Marion was escorted across the bridge on a truck and her food and bicycle were returned to her with no comment. Quote, I don't know what made them do it, but I do know that these Germans had some decency left, Marion later had to say about the situation. The liberation of the Netherlands by Canadian, British, and Polish forces began in September 1944 and by May 5, 1945, Nazi Germany had surrendered, which led to the final liberation of the whole country. The next day, the details were worked out and on May 7th, the British and Canadians assumed authority over the Netherlands. The war was finally over, but the irreversible damage had already been done. 
Between the summer of 1942 and September 3, 1944, when the last train left for Auschwitz, the Nazis and their Dutch collaborators deported some 107,000 Jews, mostly to Auschwitz and Sobibor extermination camp, where all but 5,200 were murdered. However, 25 to 30,000 Jews went into hiding, assisted by the Dutch underground. Two-thirds of those Dutch Jews who went into hiding managed to survive, including as many as 150 Jewish children that Marion van Binsbergen helped save. The end of the war meant that Fred Pollock and his three children, who Marion had been hiding since the fall of 1942, would now move on with their lives. Giving up little Erica, who 24-year-old Marion had been raising as her own, was very hard for her, and so when she saw an ad in June 1945 to work for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration in Germany, Marianne applied for the job. Quote, I went to work in the displaced persons camps for two reasons. It was a job, and I needed a job, but most important, I thought I might find out quicker than if I stayed in Holland what had happened to a lot of my Jewish friends. In the displaced persons camp, Marion looked after the needs of survivors of the war, most of them Jewish, and processed the papers for placing people. During that time, she met her future husband, Anton Tony Pritchard, who had been an officer in the U.S. Army. Captain Pritchard had been part of the force that liberated Buchenwald concentration camp, which left a lasting impression on him. The couple met at the Winsheim DP camp in Germany, where Tony was the director, and got married in April 1947. After two years of work with the United Nations, the couple decided it was time to begin a new chapter, and on May 29, they flew out of Berlin and landed the following morning in New York. From New York to Vermont in the 1970s, Marianne became a psychoanalyst and mother of three sons. She also ran her own psychoanalysis practice for several decades. Marion didn't tell her sons about her experiences during the war until the early 1980s, and this was due to guilt she felt. Guilt that she didn't do enough for the Jews of the Netherlands. She always had a photo of baby Erica on her desk, but her sons just thought it was Marion as a baby. However, later in her life, Marion lectured extensively about her experiences as a rescuer during World War II. She insisted that she could not have done her work without the assistance, overt or implied, of neighbors, friends, and other members of the resistance. Marion also stressed the fact that Jews themselves were active participants in rescue activities and deserved to be recognized by Yad Vashem, Israel's official memorial to the victims of the Holocaust that only honors non-Jewish heroes of the Holocaust. In a 1996 lecture that Marion gave at the University of Michigan, she had the following to say about the issue. Conventional wisdom has, has divided the players in the grievous tragedy known as the Holocaust into three groups, perpetrators, victims, and bystanders. A fourth dimension was added in 1953 when the Israeli Knesset passed the Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Law which outlined the functions of Yad Vashem and provided a definition of the righteous among the nations of the world. Those people 
considered worthy of the title, are defined as the high-minded Gentiles who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Recognized rescuers are designated after a lengthy and meticulous investigation. But Yad Vashem, dedicated to memorializing and teaching the Holocaust, does not honor the Jewish heroes and rescuers, the Jewish righteous, if you will. It is the philosophy of Yad Vashem that Jews who rescued other Jews were merely doing their duty, while Gentiles who rescued Jews were doing something special. Not recognizing the moral courage, the heroism of the Jewish rescuers, who, if caught, were at much higher risk of the most punitive retaliation than we were, is a distortion of history, a distortion that should not be continued. It also contributes to the widespread fallacious notion that the Jews were cowards who allowed themselves to be led like lambs to slaughter. Nothing is farther from the truth. On March 31, 1981, Yad Vashem recognized Marianne Pritchard Van Binsbergen as righteous among the nations based on the testimony of Fred Pollack, the Jewish man she had hid during the war along with his three young children. In 1991, Marianne's husband Tony Pritchard died and in that same year, Marianne attended the Conference on the Hidden Child in New York where she was reunited with Katinka the little girl she had kidnapped from the Germans so many years before. Erica Pollock, the baby Marianne had raised in hiding, had been unable to attend the conference because she had just given birth to a child. Beginning in the mid-1990s, Marianne was an active participant, along with a number of survivors and guest lecturers, in the Summer Seminar for Teachers, organized annually by the Miller Center for Holocaust Studies and coordinated by Robert Bernheim. According to Bernheim, quote, she could silence a room with her presence. Her message was timeless. It is essential to care about our fellow human beings. Values matter. But in expressing these sentiments, she never preached or spoke down to her audiences. In 2003, Marianne received an honorary degree of Doctor of Laws at the University of Vermont. Three years later, in 2006, Marianne relocated to Washington, D.C. in order to be closer to her son, Ivor. Marianne Van Binsbergen Pritchard died in the nation's capital on December 11, 2016, at the age of 96. She was survived by her three sons, Arnold Pritchard of New Haven, Connecticut, Brian Pritchard of Los Angeles, and Ivor Pritchard of Washington, D.C., eight grandchildren and a great-grandson. Quote, My whole family is so grateful to her, Erica Pollack wrote in an email after Marianne died, according to the Washington Post. No words will ever be enough to describe that deep gratitude we feel. Throughout her life, Marianne was a formidable advocate for children, first as a social worker and then as a practicing psychoanalyst. With the passing of Marianne Van Binsbergen Pritchard, the world lost a brave and noble woman who acted on her convictions at a time when most other people stood by and looked on in dismay or turned away. 
May the memory of Marianne be a blessing to us all. Thank you for listening to the last episode of Season 2, and I hope you have learned something new today. Season 2 of Hidden History has covered the lives of victims and heroes of the Holocaust. Many of their stories have been hidden in the pages of history and deserve to be told, which is why we decided to focus on the Holocaust for Season 2. While we are still deciding on the subject for Season 3 of Hidden History, please follow us on Instagram, at Hidden History Pod, and please subscribe to our YouTube, at Hidden History Pod. Now that Season 2 is done, a lot more content will be coming to Instagram and YouTube, so keep an eye out for that. We plan on starting Season 3 sometime at the end of September 2023, so please check our Instagram for updates. Pictures, newspaper clippings, and links to external articles relating to a particular episode are available on our website, HiddenHistoryPod.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm John Rodriguez, and until we meet again, this has been Hidden History, and now I'll see you through time.